the epidural. But one of the, I, I guess the two things that came out of this talk for me was number one, highlighting those risks so everyone is aware of it because it, it became quite clear that even amongst many obstetric and these discovered, this risk wasn't known to everybody. Yes. Number one, and so I think that's a message for everybody just to be aware that there is a real potential risk of death or serious harm with uh, neuraxial tranexamic acid. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the podcast. So today uh, I'm at the ANSCA ASM with uh, Matt Rutledge and I've, uh, we've cornered um, Professor Neil Lucas who's a invited speaker from the UK who, who came over for the obstetric anesthesia SIG meeting as well. Thanks for coming along Matt and Lula. Pleasure. Um, so this is a really little informal recording. We thought we'd just um, have a chat about the um, the satellite meeting that we've had, which on, on obstetric anesthesia, which was, uh, was put together and convened by Matt. So thanks for a really good program, Matt. No pleasure, Roger. Yeah. Good to have you all along and yeah. contribute. Um, <coughs> I thought we'd kick it off by perhaps just going through some of the highlights of the meeting, and then we'll just have a general discussion about how the meeting went, and we can talk to Nula about how some of the meetings in the UK go. For sure. Well, the, uh, the, the, the title of the meeting was Challenges and Choices, um, and really to reflect the, uh, the many difficulties we have in our specialty and to draw on some experts to discuss some of the decisions that we can make around that. So we covered a whole range of different topics. Um, starting the first session, uh, which was one of the highlights for me, I had many highlights, yep. um, but we kicked off with a talk from Nula um, looking at... Um, well, basically doing our job of reading the journals and distilling what Nula thought was uh, the key things within the journals. And Nula, what, what were the highlights from that that you can share with us? Uh, well, the way... Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Roger. Um, well, the way I always think about it is that fundamentally modern obstetric anaesthetic care is actually quite safe. And to try and bring about changes, improvements, we really... We're not going to be looking for sweeping changes. We're going to be looking for small tweaks, marginal gains to our practice, that when we add them up, they get cumulative, you have a more significant impact. So the things that I picked out were some big data studies. I think big data studies are really important, not just in obstetric anesthesia, but across the board. So uh, a couple of manuscripts really refuting the association between labor neuraxial analgesia and the development of autism. I think yep. that's a really big concern for our mothers. Yeah. Can we put that to bed now? So if, if we are asked by a, uh, a, 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 a somebody wanting an epidural for labor, can we say there is no risk if we are asked about that? I, I feel very strongly... Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah, I, I feel very strongly <laughs> that we absolutely can. Mm. And, and aside from the fact we want to be able to offer our women labor analgesia and and give them the confidence mm. that it's not going to harm their baby. You know, we know that another manuscript I presented demonstrated that uh, labor neuroxial analgesia is associated with reduced maternal morbidity, particularly mm. in obstetric hemorrhage. So having an epidural is obviously helps with pain, but it confers some benefit mm -hmm. for the mother yeah. in terms of morbidity outcomes and doesn't harm the baby. So we can absolutely put it to bed. And I remember one of the questions that came up, which we didn't have time to 
um, to raise at the time was the mechanisms for why that might be. Is mm. it because we're getting better monitoring during labour if you've got an epidural in, or, or what are the other factors the, the associated with The mechanisms with were associated with reduced morbidity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, it, obviously, I think if you have got an epidural, you, it does imply slightly more, I don't want to say medical intervention, I don't use that in a pejorative way, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but obviously you're just getting a bit more monitoring and observation, mm -hmm. perhaps a bit, and if you get more monitoring and observation, you get hopefully get a, a rap, more rapid response yeah. when things do start to go a little bit um, awry. So I think that's probably the cornerstone yeah. of why it makes a difference. And have these studies been controlled for the the people asking for epidurals. I mean, because yeah. that's because we know there are these significant course, there's, there's disparities, loads, loads in of confounders. Mm. But when they have controlled <coughs> the confounders, such as um, ethnicity, um, it, it 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 still holds. The effect still holds. But it does bring us on to another manuscript, which I'm actually going to be discussing tomorrow. I didn't discuss it at the SIG meeting, but about obstetric anaesthetic disparities mm. in outcomes. Um, so, you know, we've known for some time from US data that um, certain ethnic groups are less likely to have an epidural for labour analgesia, more likely to have a GA for caesarean section. We know that those aren't ideal. But of course, the big problem with the US, the big confounder is the fact that uh, healthcare is not free at the point of access. It's all yep. insurance-based, and trying to control for that is difficult. So in the UK, where we have a, a healthcare system that is free at the point of access, we've just analysed a, a huge NHS database. And we've disappointingly demonstrated similar results to the US. Women from some ethnic groups are less likely to have an epidural for vaginal delivery more likely to have a general anaesthetic for caesarean section. So my personal view on this is that we need to stop trying to demonstrate this now. We need to look at the reasons behind this yep. um, to try and um, remove this disparity. Yeah, I look, I think that's a really, really important thing for everybody to be aware of because certainly the, you know, the uh, settings that many of us work in, we look after a, a, a disparity of, of different groups Absolutely. and ethnicities. Yes, I don't, I don't know if anyone in Australia or New Zealand has looked at um, <coughs> the data uh, in these jurisdictions, but I suspect it's probably similar. Um, do you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Having said that, I, I think we need to stop looking. I mean, I do think mm. it would be interesting yeah. to look at in Australia and New Zealand the outcomes for women from different backgrounds, um, Aboriginal community, mm -hmm. uh, Torres Strait Islanders, and in, similarly in New Zealand. Well, instead of looking now to implement different practice well I think I think look, look to see what's going on what you know how you're providing care for these women um, but I think I sus my, sus my gut feeling is that it will probably show similar uh, dif differences disparities as the US and the UK um, but then let's let's all work together to understand why these disparities arise and how we can effectively address them brilliant I mean I think that's one of the, the highlights of um, your week here, Nula, um, and um, I look forward to hearing that talk in, in full. Um, one of the other things that came from the session um, on the first day was uh, an important uh, message, really, from Professor John Newnham, um, who'll be known to many of our listeners, um, Professor of Obstetrics at uh, King Edward, really highlighting uh, the significant risks of preterm delivery, unless there are obstetric reasons to do so. Yep. And he highlighted that um, by reducing a very small number of um, stillbirths by delivering before 37 weeks 
uh, you are resulting in a significant number of babies born with longer-term behavioural uh, numeracy issues in later adult life, and just by pushing that delivery beyond the 37 weeks to 38 uh, to 39, 40 weeks, um, can reduce that. And he's doing some amazing work uh, across uh, Australasia, and he really came and he shared that message with a very influential group of obstetric anaesthetists. And I think there are things going on in the UK with respect to this as well, Neela. Yeah, I mean that was for me that was just one of the most wonderful talks, and it, it was just delivered in such a warm personable way yeah. I have to yes. say you know you could, nobody could be failed to uh, enthused by his message um, but yes I mean delivering 39 weeks has been a nice recommendation the National Institute for Clinical Excellence they produce all, um, quite a lot of our guidelines in the UK and um, that's been a, a pretty solid recommendation for, for several years now but it, you know from time to time it does slip and when we're doing our debrief for our planned our elective section list in the morning from time to time a woman crops up, she's got a breach presentation and the obstetricians have put her on the list and she's only 37 plus 4 and you know with the nice recommendation as an aesthetist you know we're quite empowered to say why are we doing this woman today you know does she is there yes. a reason to do yeah. it today and with respect to the obstetricians they listen and I think that's the point that Prof Newman was making you know as anaesthetist anesthesiologist you know we're in a good position to to say to those obstetricians who sometimes forget their diaries to say, hang on a minute, this woman's <laughs> not quite 39 weeks. That's right. That's, in our institution, the, the obstetrician who's doing the caesarean is often not funny book there. So oh, yeah, sometimes it's not yeah. necessarily yeah, yeah, that difficult a conversation either. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they'll say, oh, I don't know why they booked it. Yeah, no, I completely yeah. agree. <clears throat> what else was a, was a highlight for you, Matt? Um, well, look, I think I think probably covered most of those for... Um, are we still talking about the first session and the whole meeting? <laughs> oh, let's just go for the whole meeting. <laughs> I know, yeah. we, we could we be here for some time. because We don't want to go through that. Yeah, so, so it was a two-day meeting and there, was, there were lots of really good talks. Yeah, yeah. but look, I think to summarise, uh, I think really important that, you know, if we are asked about the risk of autism uh, with epidurals, we can put that to bed. Uh, we're very aware now of those risks of preterm delivery, if we can avoid that. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and the, and the, the, the disparities in, in healthcare and also the um, and, and the medical interventions which are provided to different socioeconomic groups. Really, really important. I think that's a really important message for all of us. Okay. Um, um, yeah, go for it, Roger. I've got a couple of things that are in my uh, that are stuck in my head. Um, so the uh, we had a virtual presentation that Matt um, I think rec um, organised based on Norma's recommendation of um, I can't mm -hmm. remember his name. David now. Bishop. David um, Bishop. A um, anesthesiologist working in South Africa who talked about a really serious and important issue of um, a number of deaths, I think it was eight, eight or ten, eight to ten deaths in South Africa now with um, accidental intrathecal injection of um, tranexamic acid, which um, I think we were aware that um, tranexamic acid is you know, neurotoxic, but the fact that it is actually uh, leading to maternal deaths um, in just one country, um, that, that many deaths. Um, I think there's been some quite confronting to the audience, I think, and mm, a lot yeah. of people weren't aware of this, of how serious this is. And considering that, um, you know, an established sort of you know, good going PPH, I think the role of tranexamic acid is well established, but now there's been a lot of creep and its indication, and I don't know what you find but, uh, in the UK, nor in that, and what you've been seeing, but just about, you know, very, very straightforward caesareans that's been used all the time. and on all our drug trolleys and it's, mm. it's a, it can be a serious issue here in the, in the developed world as well it's not just something that could happen in, um, <coughs> in somewhere like South Africa so that just encouraged a lot of discussion and that went on to the, another session where we, we had a neuro 
uh, neurosurgeon um, who was very engaging and a really good speaker and uh, very entertaining when we um, approached him with this issue and asked him how we'd fix it mm. and uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a great answer. He said basically I'll roll them on their side and do a laminectomy and wash it out. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I've heard that talk before, um, and it's a great talk from David talking about a very difficult subject. Um, you know, I think there are some specific circumstances that in South Africa, you know, a lot of care, anaesthesia care is delivered by non-physician yeah. people working in very remote situations without any backup and support. Um, you know, they do a terrific job, but you know, it is um, many hospitals are very different settings to the settings that yes, we would all right. work in. But I, I think it, you know, we mustn't be complacent. You know, we it's well recognised now that there's shortages wherever you work in the world, UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. We get different drug formulations every week, you know, and for a while we were getting a different type of hyperbaric 0.5% um, marcaine every couple of weeks. And a lot of these ampules look very similar to the types yes. of ampules. Yeah, he, he showed a photograph, didn't he? Uh, and they were remarkably yeah. similar. Remarkably similar. Yes, looked yeah. almost the same. And mm. all the drugs in these um, regional hospitals that he was talking about uh, are kept on one trolley. So they're all next to each other. Yeah. And they look exactly the same to, to, to all intents and purposes. So you could see how it would happen. Uh, it wasn't. Um, you know, Just that human factors. It was a systemic problem, really, not a human thing. I think. Yes, it's absolutely. Happened, you know that that cheese, cheese model. Actually, that yeah. was something else that we talked about. Um, <coughs> the human factors guidelines that they published in the UK, mm. uh, and they make lots of you know really valuable uh, recommendations, advice about trying to separate out drugs that potentially are harmed and given by a detrimental route. A few years ago in the UK, we changed and we had to put all our local anaesthetics into a separate lockup cupboard mm. to all the IV drugs. Yes, and I, you know I kind of feel we should be doing the same with things with tranexamic acid and certainly when I'm drawing up my spinal injectate and I don't double check with another person mm. all my anaesthetic drugs maybe I should it's another discussion mm. but I do try to get into the habit of double checking all my spinal injectate drugs but the situation that I actually worry as much about it is um, you topped up an epidural for a cesarean section yes and you know second stage cesarean section she almost starts to bleed a bit the surgeon says oh, you know can you give her a gram of tranexamic acid and you get it out you know you're tired it's, you know, slightly, mm. and instead of reaching for the uh, IV you reach for the epidural um, set and, I mean it, it sounds crazy but but we know that we do it, it. is possible it yeah. absolutely it is possible yeah. I mean well, I'm sure I'm saying you've seen in the UK but we know even just in our hospital that um, the number of different medications that have gone down epidurals over the last oh, 15 yeah. years it's um, it's yeah, and look, it does worry me. Um, and uh, you know, the epidural space has proven, certainly with some of the cases we've experienced and others around the world, to be a relatively resilient space. But for certain medications, for hexidine and potentially tranexamic acid, it, it could be devastating given the uh, the risks of intrafecal use. So I, I, I do worry about that as well, just given the yeah the situations where we're likely to be asked for tranexamic acid mm. or going to be. You know, chaotic, where we're bleeding, yeah, chaotic yeah. potentially, um, yeah. and the fact that you can do it. So, to my understanding, there's been one or two cases now reported of epidural tranexamic acid. Um, I, I read one case report recently, there was no harm given. They did intervene, having recognised the, um, the event, and flushed some saline down the... Uh, the epidural. But one of the, I, I guess the two things that came out of this talk for me was number one, highlighting those risks so everyone is aware of it. So it, it became quite clear that even amongst many obstetric and discovered, this risk wasn't known to everybody. Yes. 
number one. And so I think that's a message for everybody, just to be aware that there is a real potential risk of death or serious harm with uh, uraxial tranexamic acid. Um, and then it's thinking about, well, if it does happen, what are you going to do? We have mm. some discussions about that, and, and you know, there is no clear evidence of what to do. Yes. Um, but certainly doing some form of dilution and irrigation of the uraxial space, be that the epidural or the spinal space. Yes. And possibly speaking with a neurosurgeon, if, yeah. um, I think that was a message so. that came Especially out. Especially, I think if I was involved in a case where it's intrafecal, um, considering the fact that it seems to be, you know, have an 80 to 90 percent fatality rate in South Africa, mm. I would be wanting a neurosurgeon to, to try and help you, you know, urgently remove the transamic acid from the central neurosurgeon. Yeah. You know, having a laminectomy is not the end of the world if um, if it's if it's so, if such a fatal drug. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, important yeah, thing to discuss. Yeah. Um, we had a good uh, session on uh, pain relief, didn't we? It sort of flowed nicely. We covered um, neuraxial pain relief, um, nitrous oxide, and uh, Rendy Fentanyl. We talked yes. quite a lot about dural puncture epidural. Um, yeah, that was really Mainly because one. we had um, one of the uh, the um, the guys who first put it on the map, um, Professor Lawrence Stone, is one of our keynote speakers. who delivered a great talk on neuraxial analgesia. Um, dural puncture epidural, for those not aware of it out there, um, it's not something that I'm using, you're no, using, it's not Roger? A big, it's not a, um, I don't think it's a big thing in Australia and New Zealand, but uh, possibly known about by by the community, but I don't think it's used. Yeah, yeah and essentially, um, the, 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 put it very briefly, we're, we're doing a, a combined spinal epidural, but without putting low anesthetic in the spinal space, so we're making a hole in the dura and then doing an epidural. And uh, the evidence, and I've got to say, the evidence is still relatively limited. Would you agree, Nula? We're yeah. still not a huge amount of evidence, but there is some evidence to suggest that a dual puncture epidural may provide a faster onset and more effective analgesia than a standard epidural. But um, Lawrence presented um, some of the emerging evidence to that and the reasons why one might consider using it. So I think the, um, the underlying premise is that it um, co combines the benefits of getting a hole in, in, in the dural, so the benefits of a CSE, but without the side effects of the CSE, so the um, uterine yes. hepatonus that can get leading to fetal uh, compromise sometimes, that you, you sometimes see after your spinal injectory. Um, you know, I've got the greatest of respect for Lawrence, who's a very good friend as well, but I have to say that it just does not seem logical for me that to actively breach the dura but without direct therapeutic intent. Um, you know, I do think that the evidence is currently very limited, it comes from a couple of centres only, it hasn't been taken up in mainstream use. Uh, and I think for me, the, you know, it was, most, it was best summarised by quite a nice editorial uh, in one of the American journals last year that accompanied a, a dural puncture, a DPE study with a, a negative outcome, and it said dural puncture epidural, a, a technique in search of an indication. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, look, <laughs> you know, there's, I, I'm also conscious that, you know, some of the things that we think of, you know, they start from these small seeds and the grow. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's not for me, but, mm. um, I, you know, I, I've got an open mind yeah. at this stage. More research is required. More research is required, yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing how, because it's, it's well, gosh, when was it first described? Maybe over 10 years ago now? And yeah. it's, um, it's been a slow burner, but then things mm. are, aren't they? But it yeah. hasn't gone away. No, um, it hasn't gone away. But it hasn't sort of burst into life, yeah. and it's not yes. something we're all doing. But I, I think it's really important. That's why it's good to have these conversations, mm. because there is sometimes a temptation to 
to implement things we hear about from single studies or from hearing yeah. about them from people who have been involved in them. And mm. I think just having that caution yeah. and looking at all the different yeah. literature is important. So, so that's a nice segue, talking about um, the labour energetic techniques that have started to grow but haven't burst across the world. You only been to PCIA, which yeah, was a lovely really, talk, really good um, talk from, uh, um, from Mike Jemison, who is actually, as uh, most of us in the know, um, was I think either the last or the, or the podcast we mm-hmm. the last podcast I did recently so they probably all heard his talk but it was uh, well received and very entertaining it was good wasn't it and I think what was <laughs> great about it was we, we were hearing from somebody with <coughs> immense clinical experience of written fans so there's a bit of a sort of backstory to, to having Mike talk because when we were last sitting in this very building in 2018 we heard um, from uh, Mark Vanderbilt on yes. written fentanyl um, and um, we got probably a, maybe a different message, but from Mark's point of view, you know, a fantastic researcher in our world of obstetric anaesthesia. Um, but I don't think they're using a huge obstetric at the time, not using a huge amount of red fentanyl um, in in Belgium. So, uh, but this time we heard from somebody with limited research experience, but massive clinical experience, of yes, and, and, right. and sort of understanding the pros and cons and the the real sort of you know practical at the bedside. Um, how, ways to, of how to make it work. How to make it work, exactly. And I think one of the messages for me was expect the side effects of Remington. And I think we've been looking mm. at this as if the side effects are a, uh, a downside and, and a reason not to give it. But I think Mike's message was you're going to get some hyperventilation, some deoxygenation. It's not a problem for most people. Mm. Um, but clearly, you know, when you're using it as, as often as they are in places like Belfast, um, you, you get better feeling for the drug. Are you using it, Nuala, in your...? Um, so it's... Am I using it? Look, we try to make sure it's available for those women who can't have an epidural, so, you know, either spinal rods, mm. significant thrombocytopenia. But the, the biggest problem for us in the UK, I would say, it's, is that you really do need dedicated one-to-one midwifery care. Yes. And we've got a big shortage of midwives at the moment. And in fact, in my unit recently, we had a woman who transferred in from a neighbouring unit because she um, couldn't have an epidural. She was absolutely clear she wanted good analgesia and um, they didn't offer any fentanyl PCA because they couldn't guarantee having one-to-one midwifery care. And, and this has become a, a particular talking point, pressure point at the moment because NICE, the guideline group, they've just put out their draft guidance for their update to intrapartum care. And within it, they recommend to use uh, that should be available as a you know just another choice for women. Right. Okay. Uh, so mm-hmm. alongside strong, this, this yeah. pretty strong mm-hmm. recommendation. But the other point I think we need to remember about Remifentin PCA is that the studies suggest that around two thirds, maybe a bit more, maybe eighty percent of women use Entonox nitrous oxide mm-hmm. alongside it to optimize its analgesic yes. benefit. And, and you know at the same time in the same meeting we're having a talk about trying to reduce mm. nitrous oxide use because of its dreadful environmental yes. impact. So I think, you know, at the moment when we make decisions for our patients, you know, we think about the risks, we think about the benefits, what does the patient want, and we're starting to bring in, you know, the impact on the environment. And it, the impact on the environment, that element of decision-making doesn't quite have parity with those other components. But yes. I think that in future, the environmental impact will have parity with the other elements of our decision making and I think that you know that nitrous issue in Remy is you know for me is another reason why 
I'm not a big advocate of it. You know, certainly I think it should be available, but I, you know, I'm pretty anxious about it being offered in parity with epidurals. <coughs> so on that point, I was uh, my understanding of someone who gave a talk on nitrous oxide said that in one of the district hospitals or one of the centres in the UK has recently removed nitrous oxide from Maplewood because of the occupational health. Yeah. Uh, the levels were so high they were above the, the safe recommended levels and I was concerned for the midwives and staff, staff members working in Maplewood. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, I mean, nitrous has been a big talking point recently, I mean, I think across the world because it's a pretty yes. toxic agent. Um, but in the UK, they started looking at ambient levels in labor ward rooms and they were way above, not just one mm-hmm. hospital, I think several hospitals. So lots of people have very quickly had to come up with mitigating strategies to... Um, make it safer and I think I did I did read in one place but I think it was very short lived because you know we don't want to compromise analgesia for mm, our women. That's right, yeah. Nitrous oxide is widely used in the UK. It has high satisfaction scores even if the analgesia yeah. Yeah, the, the evidence the, is the evidence doesn't you know if you look at it in terms of an analgesia it doesn't do well but it, you know satisfaction scores. But I often think because you know most of North America or the US anyway I'm not sure about Canada haven't had nitrous oxide ever uh, until very recently and they seem to cope so I just wonder whether it's Partially the problem is just that we have it there and, yeah, and they can reach for it and it actually the absolutely. women would still be satisfied mm. with their labour if, if they just kind of, they, if they, they, you can't miss something you don't have, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's, that's a philosophical debate, I guess. Mm. But going back to the remifentil and the nitrous use, I did ask, I didn't get asked in the questions, but I did ask Mike afterwards and he said they do use nitrous but not very much. So if you know, you're thinking about the greenhouse gas uh, component and stuff, it, uh, it is actually a lot less than someone who doesn't have a remifentil. Um, and sometimes women with an epidural use nitrous a little bit. Mm. So mm. it's not. Mm. Um, you know what you need just to do there, though? You need to recite the epidural. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or just give a proper top up. Yeah, or give a proper top up. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes the midwives don't let them um, press the button when they're getting close to delivering. Mm. So it's a really interesting <laughs> area, isn't it? It's the, the kind of stars are a kind of colliding or aligning, whichever way you want to look at it, in so much as we recognise yes. the environmental impact of nitrous, but also a lot of people use it. And some, yeah, some of the, we, we've got, I think, 60% of women that come through our labour unit um, use nitrous at some point yeah. during yeah. that. Yeah. So, so to say, well, we're going to maybe yeah. so not use hard, that. It's pretty hard to take it away. But it's I guess if it's hard to take it away. The US are in a lucky situation. I don't know why they're trying to introduce it, because they're sort of in a perfect situation where the community don't know that it exists mm-hmm. and they don't they're not demanding it, mm. so and they could they could solve the problem by just not mm. going through the flavor yeah. of introducing and it. And in mainland and Europe, um, it's not widely used. I mean, yes. the UK uses it. I think, I suppose geographically, Western Europe, even if we're not politically <laughs> in Europe, <laughs> yeah. let's not start talking about that. Um, so it hasn't happened, as far as I'm aware, at our hospital. Uh, look, we do use remifentanil, but normally, if we can't use a, a, a axial yeah, technique, but I'm not aware of uh, a woman saying, "Look, I want that." You know that that button to press. I don't want anything in my back. Um, so you, you, using it as an alternative choice for labour analgesia, um, regardless of any maternal risks or contraindications, with the nice guidance that's that you say that's imp- impressive. Well, so it's, it's, they put it out as draft for consultation. Right. So, so when they go to antenatal classes and we're talking about all the different options, is it something we're obliged to? Start to so we're going to the obstetric anaesthetist association that you know I work with. We're going to be responding to this and offering our perspective on this, yeah. particularly with regards to the, the midwifery levels. Um, 
but yeah, that's if it, if it does get, get through and becomes um, a recommendation, then that's what will have to happen. You know, I will go and speak to a woman, a mm. uh, birthing person who's in labour and say, well, these are your options for analgesia. You can have an epidural or you can have <coughs> remifentanil and PCN. Mm. So the implications are absolutely enormous yeah. in the UK. So it's a huge change, mm. a huge change in practice if you start offering it to everyone yeah. rather than just yeah. a few. And while some of the more recent studies and the, the data coming out of um, places like in Belfast demonstrate good quality and safety, mm. when you start rolling something out because you're obliged to do so, the, the, there is a risk, isn't there, that you yeah. may not always follow. And Mike was very, very clear yeah, on when you would use it and when you wouldn't mm. use it, and just having those same standards. And I, I have to yeah. say that I worked with an obstetric uh, SR from uh, Belfast recently, and she said to me, oh yeah, everyone, all the obstetric obstetricians who have a baby, they all go into their first baby and they have remifentanil PCA, and when they come back from number two, they say, no, I'm going to epidural this yeah. time. <laughs> I, I had a woman who... I had a woman who had three babies with an epidural, and then she had um, uh, a thrombocytopenia and was told she wasn't allowed one. She didn't. She she wasn't very happy with remifentanil. That's just I know of mm. a single anecdote. Yeah. But she was like, mm. "What? <laughs> this is nowhere near as good." She said. <laughs> so I don't think we're ever going um, to. It's another job. choice, though, it's isn't it? Choice. And and, yeah. and we are yeah. fairly bereft of. And there are choices. some there are some women who have strong feelings that they would prefer not to have any access mm. uh, for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, there are probably women who have had complications from uraxials and when they come mm. in next time they would prefer not to have a dual puncture today for, for yeah. re-sighted epidurals yeah, like they yeah. did last time. But it was, yeah, it, was, it was a great thing to discuss, I think, you know, five years down the track from our previous discussion on this topic. Wicked, yeah. yes. So, it, uh, let's move on. What other highlights uh, do you We're have? We're just, just finishing the first, um, the first day. We had a fantastic last session on clinical cases and we sort of raced through cardiac, ECMO, yeah. neurological conditions. And I particularly uh, enjoyed a talk from um, James uh, Griffiths um, oh, who yes. talked on <laughs> all that twitches is not no, all the oh twitches, no, hang on. All, all the, the twitches on label ward oh yes. is not a clamsia. <laughs> uh, and went through the uh, the different um, uh, courses of fitting on the label ward. It was great, wasn't it? It was yeah. a uh, very, uh, very entertaining. Yeah, absolutely, yes. yeah. Um, and then this was followed on from a neurosurgical talk from Jung Kim, um, who, who who touched on um, uh, Chiari malformation and and uh, the implications um, with neuraxial anesthesia yes. and analgesia. No definitive conclusions no were made, yeah. but, but it was a very well-rounded and, um, and um, a good perspective, yeah. a sens it was sensible perspective. Yeah, it was just great to hear those clinical cases, you know, I know yeah. this, in terms of quality of evidence, there was the lowest quality of evidence, but invariably, you know, it's the thing you always remember, somebody mm. describing a case, you know, particularly those ones where the yes. outcome is bad, and, and the neurologist was great, um, mm -hmm. really well worth listening to. Yeah, yeah absolutely. listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to see you again next time
The Opsangani Crit Care Podcast would like to acknowledge the Wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.